Well, the passage we'll be looking at this morning is in uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. You could follow along in your own Bibles or in the bulletin as well. The Word of God, through the mouth of the Apostle Paul, in the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. This is the Word of God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now if you would, turn your attention to the congregational reading from Romans 6. We are memorizing these passages together by reading them aloud together each Sunday. So would you read together with me Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Please be seated, and would you join me in a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for the privilege of looking together at your word. We thank you especially for this epistle to the Romans. And on this week of Thanksgiving, when we as individuals and as families think about the things that we are thankful for, we think about the things that you have blessed us with and given to us we're reminded, as Stephen prayed this morning, we're reminded that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the salvation that is ours through him, is the thing that we have to be most thankful for. It is the thing which we gather to worship you out of the thanksgiving of our hearts. It is the thing that you have accomplished on our behalf because of nothing that we have done nor anything in and of us out of sheer grace the good news of Jesus Christ for us. And so this morning, as we look together at this passage, would you be glorified, Lord God? Would you sanctify our hearts? Would you make us to see more of the salvation that is ours and our need for the gospel? In Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior and your Son, we ask all of this for your glory. Amen. This morning, as I said, the, the passage is written up here and again, if you're looking in the back and you're like, I can't read that, don't worry, it's the same passage that's in front of you, okay? So I wrote it here because I want to make note of a few things, but as you follow along, you can make notes 
in your own Bibles or in the bulletin. Either way would be fine. This morning, as we prepare to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, I've begun by writing a brief passage from the first chapter of Romans on the top of the board. And that's because if you can rack your brains and your memories, you can remember all the way back to when we were in Romans chapter 1, we got to the middle of the chapter and we said at the middle of the chapter, the Apostle Paul was presenting his thesis for the rest of the book. It was his purpose statement. It was to tell us where he was going in the the rest of the epistle. At the beginning of the chapter, he had introduced himself. He had made it clear that he desired to go to see the the Christians in Rome. And then in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And then later, just two verses later in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That two-part thesis statement was the introduction to the content of the rest of this letter, all the way to the 16th chapter. And what we saw was in verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18, when he said the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, he spent then from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, that we concluded last week, he spent that portion of the epistle explaining the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now this morning, Paul will transition back to the main idea that he introduced in verse 16, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he will spend the next three chapters explaining the gospel. What happens after that, from chapter 7 onward, chapter 6 really, is an explanation of both things, the wrath of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the implications for our lives, okay, what that will look like manifest in the life of believers. But now we go back to the main subject, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, as I was thinking about this passage, I love the fact that God introduces to us the wrath of God, but he doesn't camp out there too long. He moves on to the power of God in the gospel. And I love that this whole letter, in this whole letter, the the majority of the content of this letter deals with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God, an important subject, but now we move on to the substance of the letter in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we look at verses 21 through 26, we see an exposition of what Paul introduced in chapter 1, verse 16. So as a matter of fact, I want to use this this morning as a template. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This morning, we're going to see three points, verses 21 through 26, three reasons why we should not be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God, it is for salvation, and it is for everyone who believes. Three reasons why we ought not be ashamed of the gospel, we'll see in verses 21 through 26. So to introduce this then, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been ashamed? Have you ever felt shame? Have been ashamed of something? I was thinking about shame in this passage, and I was thinking, I, I can resonate with this in a variety of ways. I think of when I was a child, maybe some of you children have experienced this. When your parents, they buy your clothes for you and they make you wear certain clothes and you go to school and you're thinking, oh, look at the other people. They got the cool clothes, the cool outfits, the the things that I wish I had and my parents make me dress a certain way. You've probably felt ashamed at the way you've dressed at certain points in your life. Maybe you've felt ashamed at a family member or you've felt ashamed 
at a particular way that God has made you and makes you unique, but it also maybe makes you stand out, okay? There's a variety of things you've probably felt ashamed for. Let me ask as a second question, have you ever felt ashamed of the gospel? Have you ever felt ashamed of the gospel? I imagine that we also each can resonate with this, maybe even if just in small ways. We've had opportunities, for instance, to speak of Jesus Christ and in a conversation where we knew it was the moment to speak about Jesus, we hesitated because we felt ashamed of the gospel. Maybe we wondered, what will they think of me, or where will this conversation go, or this isn't the right time at the Thanksgiving dinner to talk about Jesus, okay, because I know how that's going to go. So you felt ashamed of the gospel at certain points. The passage this morning is kind of the antithesis of that. The passage this morning tells us why we should not be ashamed of the gospel. So if you've ever struggled with that, chapter 3, verses 21 through 26 is the answer you've been looking for for why we should not be ashamed of the gospel. So let's take a look. First of all, as I said, we should not be ashamed of the gospel, as Paul said in chapter 1, verse 16, because it's the power of God, okay? When we talk about the power of God, we really see it in verse 21 and a little bit in verse 22 this morning, so you can look at it uh, in your bulletin or in your Bibles, and in that passage, Paul begins by saying, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. The, uh, the introductory phrase there, but now, is really important, okay? So but now helps us to understand that we're making a transition. First of all, the word but is a transitional word. It clearly tells us, if we haven't understood from the substance of what Paul's saying, that we've moved from the wrath of God in 118 through 320 into the gospel of Jesus Christ beginning in verse 21. So that's the but. It means we're going a different direction. There's something new here, right? We're changing the pace. We're changing the tone, right? We're moving from the wrath of God to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the second word that Paul uses is now. It's very important. We delineate what's being said. Paul doesn't say, but then, or but when, or but if, which would be phrases that mean something of future or past reference. But he says, but now. The Greek word means at this moment, at this very time. As the Apostle Paul introduces the section on the gospel, he's making it clear that at this moment something has changed, Okay. So just as he spoke about the wrath of God in a very timeless way, remember he used a, uh, a participle phrase. He says, the wrath of God, and I said it would be better translated, is being revealed. It's a participial phrase. It has an ongoing action. The wrath of God revealed from Genesis 3, even into the future, the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Paul says now, at this moment, something has changed. And you can understand the thinking of the Apostle Paul. He speaks on the heels of the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? In the course of time, God sends his son to deal with our sin. So Paul would say, at this moment, something has changed, referring to the, the Lord Jesus Christ in his coming. This morning, as we talk about what has changed, I want you to see that the power of God is, as Paul explains it, it is the righteousness of God. And later he says this, the righteousness of God, in verse 22, the righteousness through faith. Now I've mentioned this a few times, and I want to keep harping on the idea. When you read righteousness of God, you should substitute the word rightness, okay? Everybody trips over the word righteousness. It really means to be right, 
to be right. It's, it's a very easy understanding. So as we read here in verse 21 about the power of God, this is the power of God. The rightness of God is manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The rightness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay? You see what the Apostle Paul is saying is, he's saying that God makes us right. He who is right makes us to be right. This is the power of God. He makes us to be right. And we receive it through faith. Let me tell you, you you may not recognize how special, unique, how spectacular that idea actually is. But what we realize is, as you think about, for instance, in a society, all the tall tales and the, the, uh, the fictional stories that have to do with humans' interaction with the gods, they always go like this. Human beings are always wanting the power of gods, aren't they? Right? If you think about the Avengers, I know that's like a modern mythical story, the Avengers, whether it's Thor's hammer, the Tesseract, or the various uh, powers of the gods that human beings are trying to put their hands on. Percy Jackson is another great modern example of it. Or you think about the myths of the gods, the Greek gods and the Roman gods. They're always wanting the power of the gods. The Apostle Paul says to us this morning that the power of God is ours to be right as he is right. It is ours by faith. You see how unique that is? The power of God is not ours by power or by might or by aptitude or by ability. It is ours, the rightness of God is ours through faith. Think about how simple faith is. Isn't that amazing? The power of God to make right is ours through faith. It is just to believe. That's why we read the catechism question this morning. It is just to have an, an eternal assent that God is who God is, and he will do what he has said he will do. And that's what faith is. The power of God is yours to be right through the simple, small, subtle, meek, and mild gift of faith. Isn't that amazing? So the first point this morning is very simple. Why ought we not be ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God to make human beings right through the gift of faith. Okay? That's why we ought not be ashamed of the gospel. The second thing that the Apostle Paul says here, not only should we not be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God, but also because it is for salvation. You probably recognize that the word salvation in Scripture is kind of like a generic, general word. We think about all the good things that that come from God to us in Christ Jesus, and we often call those salvation. Now, salvation is referring to the wrath of God. We're being saved from the wrath of God, but when we think about all that's involved with salvation, you can think about a number of the words that we talked about last week. We said justified, adopted, sanctified, glorified. We think of these all under the umbrella of salvation, that when God saves us, he does all this and more. Paul is just kind of extrapolating, he's pulling out what is salvation. So whereas he used the general word salvation in 116, he now goes on to explain all that's involved in our salvation. We see this beginning in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, and it moves all the way through here to the end, or actually the beginning of verse 25. Couldn't fit it all, so I'm going to flip the board over 
to the end of verse 25 when we get there, okay? But here in verses 22 through 25, Paul explains what is salvation. And there's a number of phrases in here. You probably realize as you look at this, there's a number of phrases that it would be really good to just stop and camp out on, okay? So like, let's do a sermon on 22a, and then a sermon on 22b. Many preachers have done that. We're, we're not going to do that this morning. I'll tell you why. It's not that we're skipping over it. But as you think about these things, let me just show you, for instance, here, the idea of faith. You might be like, let's talk about faith for a second. Well, faith, all right, is going to come up in chapter 4. So we're going to talk about faith. That's the idea in chapter 4. And he moves on. The faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All who believe is the same phrase here at the end of verse 16. We're going to talk about that here in our third point this morning. So we'll get to it. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, if you're like, man, I want to talk about that, let me just reference you to the first 14 sermons of this whole series, okay? Because the first 14 sermons were all about, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can find it on YouTube or the podcast, either one, just go listen to it. If you weren't here, if you missed it, okay, this was the first 14 sermons of the series, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. Last week we introduced the idea of justification. Uh, we will see more of that at the beginning of chapter 5. Okay, 5 is the chapter on justification. By his grace as a gift. That's the second half of 5. All right? Through the redemption that is in Christ. That's chapter 6. You see why we're not talking about these things right now. They're all coming. They're all packed in here into four verses. All right, but we get here to verse 25, and this is the verse we will talk about, okay? Redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Two reasons we're going to talk about that verse this morning. First of all, I'll tell you, this is kind of like the pivotal verse, all right? If everything is true, what has been just described about Jesus Christ and received by faith and the salvation that we have and we're justified and and everything that's been just described, it seems to hinge on this idea that Jesus Christ is the propitiation by his blood. So we have to talk about that. The second reason I think it's worth talking about is this word propitiation. This is the only time it appears in Romans. So we're not going to get a second chance. Right? We're not going to get to chapter 7 and talk about propitiation. Here it is. So we will talk about this verse this morning. This is what Paul has in mind as he's speaking about salvation this is the thing that makes salvation possible. If faith is the vehicle by which we receive the salvation, the propitiation of Christ is the means by which the salvation is possible. Okay? So here it is. Two Greek words put forward, propitiation. They go like this. You, you may not see it or understand it. That's okay. Okay? The first Greek word is protithemi. Okay? Protithemi. The second Greek word Propitiation is hysterion, uh, okay, hysterion, and I'm writing it wrong, I know that, hysterion, protithemi hysterion, okay, here's what they mean, and this is why I think it's important to you, first of all, protithemi is the Greek words that's translated as put forward, God put forward, but it literally means to plan or to prepare beforehand. Okay? It is the Greek phrase that is most often used when the Bible says the providence of God. Okay? It means to prepare beforehand. As a matter of fact, the only other time it's used in Romans is in chapter 1 when Paul is 
speaking to the Roman church, and he says, listen, I, I, I want to come see you. I've really desired to come see you, and I have planned to come see you. It's the, the word that's translated as planned, okay, that he had prepared, that he had been working on, that he had been thinking about, that he had been anticipating the time when he would come to visit the Christians in Rome, okay? So literally the passage says, Jesus Christ, whom God prepared beforehand, or he prepared ahead of time, he planned before this moment as a propitiation. Now, propitiation, hilasterion, is an interesting word. Most people wrestle over it because it's not a common Greek word. You can pick up the Odyssey. You can pick up some old Greek manuscripts. You will never find this word. And that's because it is a strictly religious word. A strictly religious word. You will find it in the Old Testament version, uh, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. You will find it. You will also find it in a lot of other religious texts, okay? Uh, cults use this word. Uh, the religions of the people, the you know, sacrilegious religions that you might find even in the Old Testament, they use this word. And here's what the word means, okay? The word means a sacrificial offering to satisfy the wrath or anger of a deity, all right? That's exactly what it means, okay? It is a religious word that means a sacrificial offering to satisfy the wrath or the anger of a deity. What the Apostle Paul is saying this morning, you have to know propitiation, really important word if you're going to understand the salvation that is yours in Jesus Christ. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that there's a redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God prepared ahead of time as a sacrificial offering to satisfy the wrath of God by his blood to be received by faith, okay? Now listen, that's a, that's a crucial idea. It's a crucial idea where, although this is the first time this word appears, it is not a new idea because we have spent three chapters speaking about the wrath of God. And if we're going to answer the question that is posed in Romans 1, 2, and 3, we have to have something that satisfies the wrath of God. And it's crucial that we understand that this is how Paul speaks about Jesus Christ because it is a very popular idea in, in modern circles to talk about Jesus as not being the propitiation for the wrath of God because many people today want to do away with the wrath of God. They say it doesn't exist. You can't find it in the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't speak about a wrathful God People trip over that idea. They, they struggle over the idea that God is a wrathful God, that he has a penalty for sin, and that it must be satisfied. And so they reject the idea, but the idea is squarely found in the New Testament. Here we see it in Paul's epistle to the Romans, okay? And if Christ is not satisfying the wrath and the anger of God the Father, then there's an important question here. Whose wrath and anger is he satisfying? Whose wrath and anger is being propitiated by his blood if there's to be a redemption? Okay? It is necessary that Christ would satisfy the wrath of God the Father. Listen to how J.I. Packer explains the propitiation of Christ in his book, Knowing God. He says, in paganism... 
man propitiates his gods, and religion becomes a form of commercialism and indeed of bribery. You see how that works? And the religions of the world, the gods are saying, you must satisfy our wrath. And the function of human beings is, okay, we'll satisfy your wrath. How much is enough? How much is enough? We'll just keep doing it. It's a form of bribery, right? Let's sacrifice animals. Let's give up whatever we can. Let's suffer. Let's suffer and suffer more. And maybe we'll satisfy the wrath of our gods. And is your, is your wrath satisfied? I don't know. We've got to do more. We've got to do more. Okay, that's, that is the propitiation of the religions of the world. Now listen to what Packer says. In Christianity, however, God propitiates his wrath by his own action. He set forth Jesus Christ, says Paul, to be the propitiation of our sins. You see the difference? Propitiation, the idea hasn't changed. It is the satisfaction of the wrath of a God. Okay? The idea hasn't been altered in the New Testament, but the unique moment, the thing that is so absolutely wonderful and amazing about the propitiation of God is that he satisfies his own wrath through his son, Jesus Christ. Very different than the wrath of the gods of of the world, of all the religions of the world that we might describe or think about. Listen, if you're looking for a good definition of propitiation, it can be found in Hebrews. uh, In Hebrews chapter uh, 9, if you're looking again for a good description, in Hebrews chapter 9, this is one of the only other places that the word propitiation appears in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 9. And in Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 10, the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, here's what was happening in the Old Testament, in the temple. The priest would go in and he would take the, the goat, and, and we, we read this in Leviticus this morning, he would take the goat and he would slit the throat of the goat and he would take the blood and he'd sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and he would, he would uh, use the words that were given to him by God, and the sins of the people would be covered over, that he passed over. And, and the seat of mercy was the propitiation seat. It was the satisfying of the wrath and the anger of God, and he did this in a symbolic way, and he, he went to the temple and he did this, but the writer of Hebrews then says, oh, but there's something better. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Amen. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. See what the writer of Hebrews is saying? This is a working definition of propitiation. As the priest went into the temple and took the blood of goats and sprinkled it on the mercy seat, Christ Jesus has now done a million times better. He has entered into the temple, not the human temple, not the tabernacle on earth. He's entered into the heavenly temple. And not with the blood of goats and not with the blood of bulls, but with his own blood has satisfied the wrath of the living God so that we might be cleansed 
that our works which are filth before the living God, that our works that do not satisfy the wrath of God, that they would be annulled, but the blood of Christ would satisfy that wrath of God and we would be redeemed and reconciled before him. Isn't that amazing? Amen. We shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation through the propitiation of the blood of Christ. That's what propitiation is. And if you're thinking, okay, well, that's just like a million-dollar theological term. No, this is the functional means whereby we must be saved. The propitiation of the blood of Christ to satisfy the wrath and the anger of the living God. Here we go, the third point. Okay, not only should we not be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation, but it is also to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. Let me flip the board around here. I would say, when you think about this phrase, to everyone who believes, this is verse 25b and 26, when you think about the phrase, to everyone who believes, most often this passage is misquoted, okay? Um, And it's misquoted in this way. People will say all the time, uh, for the gospel is the power of salvation for everyone, and they stop right there, okay? The gospel is not the power of salvation for everyone. As a matter of fact, the gospel, as Paul will say in a few chapters, the gospel is a stumbling block for many, Okay? It becomes a stumbling block, and it becomes not the power of salvation for them. The gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. All right, that's significant. It's an important caveat, but it must be said. What Paul is doing here is he, is he says the, the gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. He is not talking about universal atonement. He is talking about the universal access to the gospel. Okay? That... All types of people will be saved by the gospel, all right? Men and women, slave and free, black and white, right? Africans and Americans and Canadians and South Americans and Russians and uh, Koreans and uh, Japanese and Chinese and Africans, Europeans all over the globe, okay? That all types of people, everyone who believes, all types of people will be saved by the power of gospel through faith, the power of the gospel through faith. But not only that, think about this. Not only is it a a universal access for all types of people, but it is for a universal access through faith by the power of the gospel for people for all time, okay? From past and present and future. That's the thing I think that Paul is really illustrating in verses 25b and 26. This is what he says, "The, the power of the gospel for all who believe to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness For in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does that mean? Let me explain what it means by, again, giving you a a, a little example. I, I would love for you to just make a little drawing or make note of some of the believers in the Old Testament that we've been talking about the last few weeks. I'm going to draw my stick figures, okay? Um, and my believers in the Old Testament typically have beards, all right, and maybe a little hat with sandals, okay? Um, and, and you can think of all the believers of the Old Testament that we've been talking about the, probably the last month or two. This is my Moses, okay? And uh, I will also draw David. I'll give him a beard, but give him a crown, all right? And I'll draw Elijah. You draw your own, okay? Give yourself your Old Testament believers. Elijah probably has a staff. Um, draw your Old Testament believers or, or write them down, okay? When you think of Old Testament believers, who do you think of? Okay, just go ahead and put them on your paper. Old Testament believers. 
And they may be any of the long list of Old Testament believers, but just, just jot them down. It really helps if you envision someone, okay, or a, or a few people. Old Testament believers. We've been wrestling with Old Testament believers for the last two months, okay? And last week we said it's essential that we recognize that our Old Testament believers are justified by faith, okay? If you weren't here last week, remember we said that, justified by faith, okay? That's really an an important idea in this whole thing. And we said that they're justified by faith. We compared that to works of the law. So last week we established, we said, how was... Sorry, how was Moses saved? How was Moses saved? And we said, you know, some people will answer the question. They'll say, Moses was saved by works of the law. And we said, well, that's not true. You can't find that in the Bible. So last week we established that Moses, David, Elijah, believers of the Old Testament were justified by faith. So let me ask you a second question then. If faith is the vehicle that justified Moses, Elijah, and David, then how was that justification possible, okay? How was the wrath of God satisfied on their behalf so that justification by faith might be possible? Have you ever thought about that? Uh, these, these guys, Moses, David, and Elijah, they appeared on the scene roughly 1,000 to 1,400 years before Jesus Christ, okay? So Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb of God, The propitiation of the wrath of God by his blood satisfies that wrath. How then were Old Testament believers justified by faith? How was the wrath of God propitiated? Well, if you've depending on the tradition you've grown up on, the way you answer that question might be through the blood of of, uh, goats and bulls, right? That's a very popular idea. They would make sacrifice of these animals. The wrath of God was propitiated. Then they could receive him by faith very popular idea, but let me tell you, as, as Paul's working through this epistle, he will make it clear, no, not through the blood of bulls and goats. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews says, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, he says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, okay? Let me repeat that. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, okay? So, It wasn't through the blood of bulls and goats, believe it or not, okay? The blood of bulls and goats was a foreshadow of the propitiation that would come through Jesus Christ. Look at what Paul is saying. I think this is absolutely astounding and amazing and beautiful, okay? We're going to come back to this, the rightness of God. This is to show God's rightness for in his divine forbearance. What's divine forbearance? You know what it means. Uh, forbearance means like a, a patient waiting, okay, ahead of time. So in his divine patient waiting ahead of time, well, what in the world was God patiently waiting for ahead of time? He was waiting for the coming of his son to pour out his blood, to satisfy his wrath. So ahead of time, God is patiently waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the but now, okay, the but now at the beginning of this passage. He's patiently waiting for the coming of his son, and in the meantime, he had passed over former sins, okay? He had passed over former sins of Moses and David and Elijah and whoever you drew, whomever you drew on your bulletin insert, okay? Whatever Old Testament believer came to your mind. In his divine 
patience ahead of time, waiting for the coming of his son. He had passed over the former sins of them. Okay, so he was patiently waiting. He said, David, you're justified. And Moses, you're justified. And Elijah, you're justified. Received by faith through the blood of Christ as he waited for the coming of Christ. He passed over their former sins. And this was why. It was to show. To show, right? That's an important word. It was to show his rightness. That God was right, okay? Because you could ask a very important question if you were in the Old Testament and you're like, okay, well, David's been justified by faith, but how? You might have said, how can God be right in doing this? How can he pass over sins? How can he just say, okay, you're good with me? God doesn't do that. It's outside of his character. It's outside of his nature. In his divine forbearance, waiting on the coming of his son to be the propitiation for the sin of all his people. He waited and he passed over former sins. Now this was at this present moment, okay, at the present time, to show the rightness of God. And then he adds this. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. You realize what that's saying? He's just, right? He perfectly, he perfectly pours out the penalty for all sin. He doesn't say of one sin, okay, that sin is okay, we'll let that one slide. No. His wrath is poured out as judgment on all sin perfectly, and he's the justifier of, of those who have faith in Jesus. And you might have said before this verse, you might have said, those two things are opposites. How do they both go together? How can he be just and the justifier of the one who has faith? How can he pour out his penalty on all sin and justify those who receive this grace by faith? How is that possible? And the answer is the propitiation of Jesus Christ. Amen. The blood of Christ poured out to satisfy the wrath of God makes it so that the Father might be just and the justifier. For all the sins of his children came upon Jesus Christ the Son, and God the Father was satisfied to pour out his wrath on his Son that he might be the justifier of those who come by faith to him. That's amazing. Listen to how John Murray explains this. We're, we're going to wrap this up, but I just want to read this John Murray quote. He says, the doctrine of the propitiation, I love this, so I'm just going to read it slowly. The doctrine of the propitiation is precisely this, that God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that he, by his blood, should make provision for the removal of that wrath. It was Christ's to deal with the wrath so that those loved would no longer be the objects of wrath. And love would achieve its aim of making the children of wrath the children of God's good pleasure. Let me read it again. I love that quote. The doctrine of the propitiation is precisely this, that God loved the objects of his wrath. That's us. Rebels. The people who cursed him who wanted nothing to do with him, who sinned against his law, who rejected his son, who could care less about him, for we made our own kingdoms. 
that God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that he, by his blood, should make provision for the removal of his wrath. It was Christ to deal with the wrath so that those loved would no longer be objects of wrath and love would achieve its aim of making the children of wrath the children of God's good pleasure. That's propitiation. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let me tell you, we should not be ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's amazing. It should make us not to shy away from the gospel, not to be ashamed of it, not to be embarrassed of it, not to wonder what are people going to say when I talk about the gospel. How will they receive me? Will they reject me? Will they hate me? Will they accept me? Will it ruin the Thanksgiving dinner conversation? We should not be ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. From the fall of man to the coming of Christ Jesus on the clouds, from the garden to the judgment day, for everyone who believes in the gospel, it is the power of salvation and it is our only hope. So let's be bold in the gospel. Let's be courageous in our proclamation. Let's have no fear of what people say or what people do, but let's recognize the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the propitiation of Jesus Christ, your only Son, who was part of the eternal plan of redemption to come in the form of a human being, to take on flesh, so that for the express purpose that that flesh might be broken. And he came to take on our blood so that that blood might be poured out. So that all the imagery of the Old Testament, the killing of goats and the killing of bulls and the pouring out of blood, on a regular basis, every year, again and again and again, might have been an image before the people of God of the coming of your Son. That these things, not efficacious in and of themselves, pointed ahead to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. That your wrath for our sin might be poured out, but not upon us, your people, but upon your only Son, that now the objects of your wrath, those who deserved only condemnation, might be called sons and daughters. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and would you move in us and among us that we would recognize him who is our Savior, and we would cling to him by faith receiving him, that we would not be ashamed of the good news, for it is your power to make us right for salvation to everyone who believes for all time that we might be saved. Lord God, help us to rejoice in this gospel, to celebrate it, to proclaim it, to be bold and courageous. We love you. 
We thank you. We ask, Lord God, that you be glorified in everything we say and do this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask all of this. Amen.